Amen, amen. Um, we've talked a little bit about being a gospel engine for Etowah County, and days like today help us see a glimpse of what that looks like, what it means to have children leading us in worship and interns going to the mission field and all sorts of evidences of the work of God among us. We're so grateful. If you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to be looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6 and just a couple of verses of chapter 7, but I'm going to be reading to you chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning as we look at this story together. As you're opening up there, I want to mention uh, one thing. Uh, Church Outside the Walls is coming up. Reach Week is coming up. And outside the doors today, there's some baskets that have invitations uh, for you to give folks around you. So there are two different ones. One's a generic one. You can kind of use anytime. They're around and they say hello on them. And uh, the others are specific for Church Outside the Walls. I'd just love to encourage you to grab a few of those. Uh, You never know who you might encounter that could use an invitation to church, so you'll be able to uh, pass those along to those around you. So please get those as you leave today, and uh, we'd love for you to have those and be able to invite people to come. Um, It's going to just be uh, First Baptist Gazin hanging out at the park if we don't invite people to come, but we want to make sure that when we go outside the walls, we're meeting other people who aren't here. So let's get out and invite folks um, in the coming weeks. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You have your Bibles open there. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God? The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, that is their idol or their god, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for opening our hearts and minds to realize exactly what sort of God you are. And Lord, I pray that we would be reverent and holy as we know you and and love you and serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I am afraid we take God lightly. And I know where your mind's going right now, more than likely. You're thinking, that's right, preacher. I know there are some folks who have begun to take God lightly. I see them out there. I see the stuff they're teaching our children. I see the stuff they're putting in movies. I see the way TV's going. I see the way the culture's going. And the world has begun to take God lightly. But I want you to know, so often, even the way we respond to ungodliness can take God lightly. Even the way we respond to the challenges of the world can take God lightly. Lightly, There are people who claim the name of Jesus, who claim to be Christians, who in their everyday life in practice, take God lightly. We take God lightly when we use Him. There are folks who want to use God. There are people who want to mock God with their life or their lifestyle. 
or even with their very words. And all of us at different times are tempted to take God lightly by underestimating Him, by just sort of taking Him for granted, by thinking He'll always be there sort of thing. This morning, I want you to see three truths about God that will help you see God for who He truly is, the Lord, our holy God. And I believe you'll begin to get a glimpse of what those people at Beth Shemesh said, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God. Three truths this morning that will help you see God rightly, and I believe that will help you live before Him appropriately, by His grace and for His glory. First thing I hope you'll see this morning, the first thing I want to mention to you is this, God will not be used. God will not be used. The curtain opens in chapter 4. First of all, a reminder here from verse 1 that the word of the Lord from Samuel, the word of Samuel came to all Israel, establishing that ministry which Samuel had. Then the second half of verse 1 tells us, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. These Philistines were what are now known as sea peoples who had come here to the area of Palestine and they were conquering armies. Their armies were more advanced than uh, Israel's and others in the area. In fact, one of the great military advancements it seems like this Philistine people had were metal chariots, impervious in so many ways, to the counterattack from those around them. And so after this rout... The Israelite elders, and this tells you a little bit about what a bad place Israel's in, the wisest people and the leaders that they could muster up come together and they make a decision. They say this, Bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You see, the ark of the covenant of the Lord was just that. It was a representation of God's covenant with his people. And so it represented his presence and his commitment to the people of Israel. It was a gilded box, a box covered in gold, and inside it it had a copy, the stone tablets of the law. Interestingly enough, isn't it fascinating to consider that the Lord gave uh, to his people what represented his presence and his commitment to them inside this ark, inside this box was what? A copy of his word. I've said, declares the Lord. And so they bring this ark out. And they say, if we bring this ark out, what we'll do is we'll win the battle. As Nathan's already alluded to, uh, they all shouted as the ark entered the camp. And I hope, as we've shouted to God today, this day ends better for us than it did for them. Think about what they're doing. It's something, a little trick I used to pull when I was a child. I would want to do something. Oftentimes have a friend over to my house. And so what I would do is I would ask my mom if that child could come over to play at our house with the child in front of her. It's a brilliant strategy. Because what it does is it banks on your mother's sense of propriety. She's not going to want to say no 
and embarrass herself in front of this child. One thing I didn't take into account was the ruthlessness of my mother. (laughs) She didn't care at all. She was not going to put up with me trying to twist her arm, trying to twist her arm and to get in my way. Now, you've all been in an experience where you tried to do something like that, right? Where you tried to kind of twist someone's arm to try to pressure them. And so what Israel is doing is they're saying, well, we got licked by the Philistines once. The the elders kind of concluded it's God who allowed it. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We're not going to do any soul searching. We're not going to ask if God's displeased. We're sure not going to consider, maybe it's time to beef up the military a little bit. Here's what we'll do. We'll twist God's arm. We're going to take the ark of God, which we know is a symbol of his presence and commitment to his people. And there's no way, there is no way that God will let us lose with the ark among us. And so they get the two worst possible people to help them out, Hophni and Phinehas. They're just like, this will really help. Let's get the priests. God hates those priests. But anyway, so they get these priests, they get the ark, and they say, here it goes, here it goes. There's one thing they didn't consider, though. God will not be used. God will not be manipulated. The ark was captured. The Israelites are routed. And despite the excitement in the camp, and despite the fact that the Philistines were rightly afraid, they said, we don't want to happen to us what happened to Egypt. They had heard the reputation of the Lord and what he had done in Egypt. On top of that, the ark was captured. Hophni and Phinehas die. And then when the news receives, makes it back to Shiloh, Eli hears it, and he falls backwards and dies. Because the Bible says he was old and heavy. Perhaps for any of us who meet those criteria, A word of warning to where we choose to sit. (laughs) Phineas' wife, as we've read earlier, gives birth. She names the child Ichabod. The glory has departed. And then she dies herself. And thus the curtain closes on chapter 4 in a sad, sad chapter in the history of the people of God. Brothers and sisters, let's be so careful. Let's be so careful not to try to use God. Not to try to manipulate God. There are whole entire churches and movements built on using God. If you'll be holy, if you'll have faith you'll get good stuff in return. People use the Bible, they twist the Scriptures to try to promise people that they will receive blessing in exchange for honoring and serving God. Where in the Bible do we get the picture that anyone who's faithful to God is guaranteed earthly blessing? Oh, there, there are preachers, you can turn on the TV this afternoon, you can flip the channel right now, and you can find someone who is out there trying to promise that if you have the rabbit foot of faithfulness in your pocket, God is sure to bless you. It is microwaved paganism with a mild veneer of Christianity on top. It's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the word 
of God. God will not be manipulated. Rabbit foot theology does not work. I'll tell you another thing we like to do. We like to only claim Christ sometimes when it's convenient. When it's convenient. You maybe try to hide your faith a little bit when you think it might not be a blessing for you. And you try to maybe uh, advertise your faith a little bit. You know what I mean? I think you guys know the difference between having a genuine faith, an authentic faith that others can see, and advertising your faith a little bit. Sometimes I think we're more worried about people knowing we're Christian than actually being Christian knowing we're holy than actually being holy but only when it benefits us oh be so careful my friends be so careful in living the sort of life that uses God in one scenario and ignores God in another you see these people didn't care about holiness Hophni and Phineas certainly didn't care about holiness but when it's time to win a battle what do we do let's trot God out I'll tell you another thing I see a lot of Folks using the name of God in exchange for all sorts of different things. But in particular, you see it happening on both sides of the aisle with politicians using the name of God in exchange for votes. Let's just, I I just want to encourage you as Christians, okay? I'm not going to tell everybody how to vote. We can talk about the way the Bible forms our conscience. I think you should vote. But I want to say this, just don't be a cheap date. Just don't be a cheap date. Some of us, before they even get the D out of, on God, we're done. We're, we know who we're voting for. But I want to encourage you. Some people use God. I'm so thankful for those of you who are involved in politics, who are a part of politics. I'm so proud of the way so many folks I know don't do this. But my goodness, you don't have to spend very long to see someone trotting out Scripture, trotting out the name of God, trying to use the Bible, trying to use God to manipulate others. Let's just not be cheap dates. Let's not bless the wickedness of using God. I hope we'll have Christian politicians and I hope we'll have people who live out their faith and convictions in their life leading God's people. But I want us to be so careful and so wise, wise as serpents, shrewd as Christians in where we throw our loud and vocal support. God will not be used. Second of all, God will not be mocked. God will will not be mocked. The Philistines are riding high. Can't blame them, can you? They, they were terrified. If you look back in chapter 4, they're terrified of the fact that they're bringing the ark of God into the camp. They hear the shouting and they hear the hollering and they think, this is over, we're done. So they, they get as tough as they can get. They win the battle and they cart the ark of God off thinking that they've killed Hophni and Phinehas, thinking that they've done Israel a great a great disservice in killing Hophni and Phinehas when in reality they're actually what? Fulfilling God's will unknowingly, unwittingly. And then they think that they have conquered Israel and in so doing they think they have conquered Israel's local colloquial God. He was too big and too tough and too bad for the Egyptians but he'd just never met a Philistine before. And so they carted their God, they would say. They carted their God because their gods are idols. They carted their God out to the battle. And guess what? Dagon showed himself. Our God, Dagon, this fertility God of some sort, 
apparently, scholars think, is stronger than Yahweh. Why? Because Israel had treated their God just like the Philistines treat their God, like he's a talisman or a token, like if we're good enough to him, if we do this or if we do that, or even if we just give him sort of uh, token acknowledgement, he's going to fight our battles as if God's job is to fight Israel's battles. That's not God's job. God is not some local ghettoized God. He does not belong simply to one people. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The earth is his footstool and the heavens are his throne. And he is holy before all peoples. And so the Philistines make a crucial mistake in thinking that their God had beat Israel's God. And so what do they do? Well, they do what you do with a defeated God. You bring them into your God's throne room and you put him there before him. You bring him there into the house of Dagon, this temple where this God resided. And what happens? They bring what they believe is the God of the Israelites into the house of their God, presumably to show his superiority over Israel's God. And the next day, something weird has happened. They go in and presumably never before this has happened, Dagon is flat on his face the bible says this image of dagon is flat on his face before the ark and so they say well i didn't remember an earthquake or a storm last night that would have done this this is weird so they set him back up they took dagon the bible says and put him back in his place it's so cute take your little god he's laying on the floor poor little guy and we get him up and we're going to set him back up again okay that's sweet they took dagon and they put him back in his place But the next day, something more ominous has happened. Not only is Dagon flat on his belly, but he doesn't have a face to be flat on. It's been cut off, the Bible says, and his arms have been cut off. He's lying, they're lying cut off on the threshold. And so the message to the Philistines is unavoidable at this point that Dagon cannot stand before the Lord God of Israel. Not by might, not by armies, not by power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. And he's showing that these local little gods are nothing before the God of Israel. And he won't be used by the Israelites, but he won't be mocked by the Philistines. And then things get worse. The hand of the Lord, the Bible says, was heavy against the people in the city of the Philistines, Ashdod. Tumors begin to break out on the people. Later in chapter 6, I think it's verse 4, there's a mention further of mice associated with the wrath of God that's being poured out here on the Philistines. Some people think this is some form of something like bubonic plague, where these buboes come up on people and it's carried by rats. Who knows? But apparently, according to chapter 6, rats or mice are ravaging the fields and the people have some sort of growth developing on their body. Some sort of tumor is breaking out. Perhaps, though, they get together and they decide to send it to Gath. There was a practice in ancient times. These sort of victory parades would happen. One commentator said this is almost like a gross inversion of a victory parade. They've conquered this God. They've conquered this country. And now they're going to take him from city to city to show their triumph. But instead, this God's going on his own victory parade. And so they take him and Ashdod's like, get him out of here. Send him on down the line. So they send him to Gath. And guess what happens in Gath? The same thing happens. Plague breaks out in Gath. 
Well, if you're from Gath, guess what? You don't want it there either. So they send it to Ekron, and the same thing happens. Over seven months, the ark of God was there with the people, and everywhere it went, it brought wrath and destruction on those who tried to mock the living God. Finally, they decide wisely, it's time to get rid of this thing. And we'll see in a moment the plan they hatched to be rid of it. My my friends, I want you to know something. God will not be mocked. God won't be used by people who claim his name, but he won't be mocked by those who don't. God will not be set up among the panoply of other gods. Try as we may. Try as we may to act like, well, you know what? We all worship the same God anyway. People want to say that kind of thing. What an insult that is, first of all, to other people's gods. They don't want our God, guys. They want to worship their God. But listen, my friends, we don't need to tell everybody we worship the same God because we don't. Read the Old Testament over and over and over again. God makes clear, I am not other gods and I am not like other gods. God will not be ignored and God will triumph for God's own glory. What a sad situation that Israel with knowledge and the Philistines out of ignorance both, both fail to honor and respect the Lord. Both fail to treat Him like they should. But I want you to notice something. God is committed to the glory of his own name and he defeats the Philistines with no help from Israel whatsoever. You see, Israelites were perfectly correct in their assumption about God's commitment to God's own glory. They just factored themselves into the equation wrongly. They thought, we'll just hop on, hop on pop here and we'll be a part of the plan and when things start going south, God will save us to save himself. Because he sure doesn't want the ark carried off. Well, if you notice, God's fully capable. If the ark that belongs to him goes to the Philistines, he's perfectly capable to get it back to Israel with no help from Israel. They're totally passive. The only person that really seemed to care very deeply fell over and died when he heard the news. God is committed to the glory of his own name, and he defeats the Philistines himself. My friends, God is not mocked. And we cannot for a moment begin to pretend that God needs us. He doesn't need us. He does not have to have us. Now, God lovingly treasures us and chooses to use us as he pleases. I'm thankful that God uses us. We try on God's behalf for his glory and for his honor. But there, we cannot think for a moment that God needs us. And, and we can mock God unwittingly even when we start to factor ourselves into the equation in a way that outsizes our role downsizes God's I've I've heard people say things like you know what will happen to Christianity in our world or in our city if our church dies and I've heard people say what will happen to Christianity in the world if there's no Southern Baptist Convention and I've heard people say what will happen to Christianity in the world if America isn't all America ought to be. Now listen, I love this church, and um, I have a pretty strong commitment to this church not dying. Pretty strong. I love the Southern Baptist Convention. I want the Southern Baptist Convention to do well and to thrive and to reach the 
Nations for Christ. I'm glad we have things like a journeyman program. Send people overseas. I'm all in. I love this country, and I'm so thankful for the influence, the good influence. Not all it's been good, but the influence that freedom in America has allowed Christians to have all over the world. But don't think for a second that God needs a one of us. You think God won't have a witness in the world without First Baptist Church? You think God's going to leave himself without missionaries in the world, without the Southern Baptist Convention? Do you think Jesus won't be glorified among all nations without this country or that country? My friends, God will not be mocked. He doesn't have to have us. He chooses to use us according to his grace. But don't for a moment start to get high and mighty and think for one second that you're going to twist God's arm and mock God by forcing him in this way or that way or to have too high of a view of yourself in terms of God's economy. We have to be so careful. God won't be used. God won't be mocked. And finally, God won't be underestimated. God won't be underestimated. Sometimes the work of God in the world seems hopeless. Can you imagine how it felt in Israel during these seven months? We just got whooped. When the ark comes back, okay, this is just something to consider. The text doesn't say this explicitly, but let me just mention one thing. When the ark comes back, you'll notice it goes from Beth Shemesh to uh, Kiriath um, Jamon. You notice it's never mentioned to take it back to Shiloh, where it was before. More than likely, it's our understanding, and history shows that at some point, Shiloh fell. The ark never goes back. It's not until Second Samuel 6 that... The ark leaves Kiriath. It goes from there to Jerusalem. So apparently the Philistines overtook Shiloh. So can you imagine how the people of God felt? Our priests are dead. The ark is gone. We're without God's promises in the world. And this great and mighty army is coming for us again. You had to wonder. You know, they had to sit and wonder, where in the world are these people? You know, where, where are they? It feels hopeless at times. And so the Philistines dealt with the presence of the ark for seven months. Finally, they come up with a good plan to send it home. And to simultaneously, they're still kind of superstitious people, they simultaneously want to just double-check and make sure that the ark was what had caused their problems. Let's just be sure that we don't need to figure something else out. So what do they do? They create a guilt offering, we learn in chapter 6. Five gold tumors and five gold mice corresponding to the cities and chiefs that had been struck with this plague from the Lord. The text tells us in chapter 6 that mice had ravaged the land as well. And so they prepare a new cart and two milk cows who have never been yoked before. Now, I'm not a farmer, but it's my understanding that cows aren't by nature able to be yoked. They don't know what to do necessarily when they're yoked to a cart. And so these are two milk cows as well that have never been yoked before. And they do something else that's kind of clever. So not only do they take two cows that are total novices and toting anything anywhere, but on top of that, they're mamas. And they take their babies, and they take their babies home and lock their babies up. And so you've got these mamas, mama cows, yoked up to a cart with udders full of milk and hungry babies back at home. And there's only one thing that nature would lead those mamas to do. Let's go back to their babies. To go back to their calves. Their calves are hungry. There's nothing in this cow that would make it want to go anywhere but home. And so what do they do? They hook up the cart, they yoke up these cows, milk cows, and they put the 
five mice and the five golden tumors as a guilt offering on the back of the cart. And then they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on the back of the cart. And then they just stand there and watch. And the Bible says those cows walk straight back to Israel, lowing all the way. I don't even think they liked it. They're griping down the line. We want to go home. We want to go feed our children. We want to do what we're supposed to do. But instead, God sends his ark home. Against all nature, against all odds, they take the ark home. And then there in Beth Shemesh, the Levites handled the ark appropriately. They take it off the thing. They offer sacrifices, including these poor milk cows. I hate to tell you all. They sacrifice these cows. But then some gawkers show up. Back home in Boaz, we call these people rubberneckers. <laughs> They're looking at the ark inappropriately. There's a hint in the language, the way it's phrased. That maybe they were, It doesn't say it explicitly, but there's a hint maybe. For those of you who feel sorry for these folks, maybe they even tried to kind of lift the lid up a little bit. They're acting inappropriately. And so the Lord strikes 70 men dead right there in Beth Shemesh. Notice what the Bible says. Chapter 6, verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? This is another situation where Israel is confronted with the holiness of God, the justice of God, and instead of searching their own hearts, they just say, Get him away from us. And so he goes to Kiriath-Jerim. I'm sorry, I mispronounced it earlier. These men come, they take the ark of the Lord, they bring it to Abinadab on the hill, they consecrate the son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord, and from there the ark was lodged there at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, 20 years, until the ark is taken elsewhere. Sometimes God's cause seems hopeless. Sometimes I think about places like where Aaron's going. Or the, or the Middle East. And God's cause seems hopeless. But God won't be underestimated. I, I learned in seminary that in the Middle East, in what's called the 1040 window, closed countries, Christians can't go there, where they're having these massive building projects. I learned that the gospel was spreading in the Middle East, not through Christian missionaries from the United States going in, but from migrant workers from China a communist country that we would never associate with Christianity, but where Christianity is exploding. By numbers, there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. And so God was taking, he's using avarice and greed in the Middle East to bring migrant workers from China who happened to believe and that the gospel was spreading in closed countries in ways we could never have imagined. Because God won't be underestimated. In all of these scenarios we see in the text, God is an afterthought where he's being manipulated as a talisman or propped up beneath another God, mourned as though he's dead or gawked at like a circus sideshow. But my friends, God will not be underestimated. He didn't send a search party for the ark. He showed himself to be powerful and holy by forcing the Philistines to send the ark home. The Philistines, they underestimated God. They thought winning one battle and carting off the ark meant their God was greater than the one true God. 
The Israelites underestimated God. They thought they could wheel the ark out and force God's hand and that he could be used to guarantee victory. The gawkers of Beth Shemesh underestimated God when they treated his ark like a museum piece or something, a sideshow curiosity. We all underestimate God. We all underestimate God when we disregard his word. Can you imagine if the Israelites had been more preoccupied with what was written inside the ark than carting the ark out like a rabbit foot? When we act like sin doesn't matter, we underestimate God. When we trample underfoot the blood of Christ, we underestimate God. But my friends, all of us, every one of us, believer, unbeliever, everybody in this world, we need a good dose of who can stand before the Lord, this holy God. Who can? Only one. Only one ever has. And that's because he was willing to bow his head under the wrath of God in order that those of us who cannot stand before the Lord would one day be able to enter into his presence with fullness of joy.